finally going to be finishing up chapter 5 of John. Uh, If you were here with us last week, we're in the middle of this kind of courtroom type of interaction that's taking place here where Jesus is providing witnesses to his case in accordance with the law of Moses, right? He's not just saying, hey, just believe me because I said so. He's so gracious that he brings witnesses to his case. And uh, obviously we see the Jewish leadership has rejected his claims of authority and deity. And so he is proving himself to be who he says he is. If you remember, one of the great ironies of this passage is the idea of man putting God on trial when in fact it is the exact opposite that is happening. Every time Jesus speaks about himself to these people in the hearing of his opponents, their guilt is just compounded and compounded and compounded as he provides witnesses to himself. He is at the same time building a witness against those who denied him. So today, as we finish his response to the Jews, we see the true judge in this scene, right? They are not the judge. He is the judge. We see the true judge take his rightful seat in this trial in the position of authority as he calls on his primary witnesses, right? So last week, we saw kind of the preliminary hearing, so to speak, where he called John the Baptist to the stand. Not that he himself needed John's testimony, but he, brought, he brings John's witness to the table in order to bolster his defense for the sake of his hearers, that they might hear and believe and have life. But as we know, for the majority of the Jewish powers at the time, they would not hear, they would not believe. And so this morning, we're going to see Jesus expose their hearts and expose their intentions and expose their guilt for what it is. So let's pray before we begin. Father, blessed be your name, Lord. You have poured out blessing beyond human comprehension, God. You have given us all things. You've given us life and breath and every good gift. And you've given us that which we needed more than anything. You gave us your perfect and Holy Son to be a propitiation for us, to be a redeemer for us, to be a savior to us. This morning we gather in your name, we gather in the name of Jesus to give you thanks and praise and glory that is due to your name. God, your mercy is new this morning and we have hope in that, we rejoice in that, we give you thanks in that. Thank you for my brothers and sisters here whom you have called out of this world and into your kingdom, into an eternal glory. And we thank you, Father, for your faithfulness. We thank you that you are a giving God, Lord, and we thank you for all those here who give of themselves as we reflect on lives of service this morning. God, we are simply following the perfect and wonderful example that has been set by our Savior. So, We give you glory and praise and honor this morning in his name. Please speak to us through your word. Encourage us, challenge us, and remind us of the life that is in Christ. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, all that being said, 
I recognize that the majority of you here in this room are not hard-hearted first-century Jews, right? Most of you guys aren't even Jewish. So, you know, it's like, okay, who cares, right? I'm not guilty. Don't worry. What this text does for us, those of you whose eyes have been opened to the truth of Jesus Christ, is not increase our guilt due to our unbelief uh, like it did for those who were listening, but rather this text increases our faith and our reverence for him due to the overwhelming and undeniable witness that God has made to the Son, the Word of God made flesh. So that's, that's our goal for this morning. If you are a hard-hearted Jew, pay close attention, all right? So let's jump off right here where we left off in verse 36. Um, if you didn't catch last week's text, you can go back and listen to that on YouTube concerning the powerful witness of John the Baptist, right? But this is his conclusion to John's time on the stand, so to speak. John has given his testimony, and this is Jesus' conclusion here, verse 36. He says, But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish... The very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. So when Jesus says here the testimony that I have, testimony that I have, he is referring to a testimony that is not of man. It doesn't originate with men, and it does not depend on men. It is the divine testimony that he is referring to, the ultimately authoritative testimony of the triune Godhead. I know that's kind of a mouthful, but that's what he's referring to, the self-authenticating testimony of God himself, above which, we covered last week, there can be no greater testimony, right? No one has been God's counselor, and he can swear by no one greater than himself, so when he testifies to himself, there can be nothing greater and nothing more true than that. And so as we touched on last week, God has borne witness to his own truthfulness, and his testimony is true. It is the testimony of the Son's works, right, done in the fulfillment of the Father's will and recorded through the prophets and the apostles by the Holy Spirit. So all three persons of the Trinity bear witness to the truthfulness of the Son's claims. So God has given us a perfect testament to his own truthfulness and the fullness of the Godhead, and specifically here in authenticating and verifying and testifying to the Son, the living Word, Jesus Christ. And so the first thing that he cites as part of his greater witness is the works that the Father gave him to accomplish, the very things that Jesus was doing in their midst. See, his own works prove who he is for those who have eyes to see. He's doing the things that only God can do and doing them with the full authority that God alone possesses. See, the prophets, too, as we know, had performed miracles, right? All kinds of miracles. But they did so only as messengers authorized by God to speak to his people. 
Their miracles, powerful as they were, were limited. They were limited in scope and they were limited in authority because the prophets came to bear witness to a higher power, to a higher authority. They performed miracles by God's prerogative in order to serve a purpose, and that being that God was declaring his word through them. So the miracles that the prophets did testified to their position, but Jesus came not only as a messenger of God, not only to declare his word, but he came as the messenger. He came as the prophet. He came as the word itself, perfectly embodied in human flesh, appealing directly to God himself, speaking directly as God himself, and having authority as God himself. He had the power inherently within himself to perform miracles. He didn't have to have this power imparted to him by someone else. He has this power within himself. He has the power to give life. He has the authority to give sins. He has the power to execute God's will through his works. All of which, as we covered last week, were prophesied beforehand through the prophets by the Holy Spirit. We read a handful of these prophecies over the past couple weeks. If you're here on Christmas Eve, cross-reference an entire chapter, you know, just a few things about the Messiah from the book of Isaiah. We've covered a lot of these prophecies, and uh, the point being, again, that Jesus did not just come out of nowhere unannounced and unexpected. It wasn't on a whim that he performed all the miracles that he did. He came to fulfill all that was spoken about him throughout all of history. His coming was so wonderful and anticipated and desired that the prophets, remember, searched diligently, trying to understand what the Spirit was indicating. When is this one going to come? What is he going to be like? And even angels marveled at his incarnation, right? Perfect heavenly beings in the very presence of God marveled at what Jesus Christ has done on behalf of humanity. That was our text, First uh, Peter, from Christmas Eve, if you were here. And so his own works bear witness that the Father has sent him. Some of you might remember there's a story in Matthew chapter 11 where John the Baptist is in prison, and things are not looking good for him. Things are getting a little sketchy. And he begins to question if Jesus is the right guy, right? Because he was not experiencing things as he had anticipated they were going to go down, right? Everyone's awaiting this king, this savior, this Messiah, and they think he's going to come in and just flip everything around, and the Jews are going to rise back to power and all this good stuff, and next thing you know, you're sitting in a jail cell. And it's like, uh, okay, what's going on here? So in verse 2 of Matthew 11, it says, when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And how did Jesus answer him? He said this. He said, go and tell John what you hear and what you see. What did he tell them? He said, what do my works say about me? Am I the one you've been waiting for or not? Verse 5, the blind receive their sight, and the lame walk, and lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have the good news preached to them. 
These are the wonderful works that the Father gave the Son to accomplish, that he must accomplish, that it said he would accomplish, and he performed them all. And he didn't do it all in secret, but he did it out in the open for many to see, unmistakably the promised one of God. So in order to deny Jesus, one has to deny the works that he did that testify of him. And he goes on. In order to deny Jesus, one must also deny the witness of the Father himself. Verse 37. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. So the next greater witness that Jesus calls to the stand is the Father himself. And yes, we do have the record of the audible, verbal approval of God in the New Testament on multiple occasions. Right? We have the baptism of Jesus. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And then later on, this hasn't happened yet, but we have the transfiguration. He says, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. But I believe it's clear that Jesus is referring to much more than that here. Not just the audible approval of the Father. He is speaking of the all-encompassing witness of the Father. The unfolding of all of history has been from the beginning a witness to the one who would come, a witness to Christ. The Father had set him apart for this task before the world was even created. And the promise of his coming was nothing new, for all hope was to be placed in him from the beginning. So when we see any promise of restoration, when we see any promise of hope, when we see any promise of salvation, it was tied directly to the coming of Christ. The coming of the seed of the woman in Genesis. The coming of the seed of Abraham. The coming of the anointed one. The coming of Emmanuel, right? God with us. The coming of the holy one. The coming of the king. The coming of the mighty one. The coming of the prince of peace. The prophet. The redeemer. The righteous branch. The rock of salvation. The root of David. The suffering servant. The son of God. And the Son of Man. This was no person that was unannounced. He didn't show up to the party late. He didn't show up early. He showed up exactly and perfectly on time at the appointed time. And he was everything that God had declared him to be. All of God's recorded revelation testifies to whom? Jesus Christ. And because of this, he tells the Jews... His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you. Why? For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. There is a masterful double entendre going on here. If you don't know what that is, he's, he, Jesus is saying two things at the same time. First, the Jews he's speaking to, he says, you've never truly known God. You've not heard You've not seen, you don't have his word in your heart, meaning they have not truly encountered or perceived God at all. They are utterly estranged from God. They are outside of him. 
But what he is also saying at the same time, and I'm going to quote directly from John 14 here, verse 7, he says, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. And then he tells him this, from now on, you do know him and have seen him. Jesus is the voice of God. He is the form of God. He is the word of God. So not only had they never known God up to this point, but he now presents himself to them in every way that he can be known by human beings, and they do not recognize him because they had never truly followed his voice. They had never truly heard him. They had never truly seen him, or they would have believed the one that he sent. To put it very shortly, listen carefully. If they believed God's word, they would have believed God's word. See what I did there? If they would have believed the word, they would have believed the word. Jesus is the divine logos. He is the word. He is the agent of creation through whom all things were made. To understand the word is to understand Christ. Amen? To reject Christ is to reject what? The Word, right? To reject Christ is to reject the Word. And so the Word of God cannot abide in someone who rejects it or rather rejects Him. And here was their grave mistake. Verse 39. He says, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So their failure to know God was not due to a lack of study. Quite the contrary, these men knew the scriptures better than anyone on the face of the earth. And yet in all their learning, they were never able to come to the knowledge of of the truth. Jesus reminds us all here that he is the so what of scripture. He is the so what. What is the point of all this? Why should I even read it? What should I get out of it? Him. Knowledge of him must come from the scripture and we must seek him and find him in it from cover to cover. You guys have heard me beat this horse to death and there are a few of you in the audience that know I love to beat a horse. I love to beat it into a pulverized powder and then take the powder and beat it into a, into a puck and then beat the puck back into a powder. Listen, the Bible is not an instruction manual. First and foremost, it is not an instruction manual. The Bible is a testament of, it is a divine witness to Jesus Christ. That is what the Word of God is. And it makes sense because He is the Word of God. We can't, we can't get this twisted up. The Word of God is about the Word of God. See what I did there? Right? It's not basic instructions before leaving earth. It contains basic instructions before leaving earth, but it is not in of itself. So in all of our interaction with God's Word, in our study, in our devotion, in our meditations. We must keep this in mind. 
as Ephesians 1 tells us, that God's plan of salvation through Christ is to be to the praise of His glorious grace. That is my favorite chapter in all of the Scripture, and so it's on the screens in the foyer. To the praise of His glorious grace, Ephesians 1. And so the aim of our interaction with God's Word should be, above all, first and foremost, to the praise of His glorious grace in Christ Jesus. That is our goal when we come to the Scripture. Above all, the praise of His glorious grace. Yes, Lord, what do you want from me? What should I do in light of this glorious grace? But first and foremost, praise Him. Praise Him for His grace. The aim of our study ought to be the knowledge and reverence of Christ. Not to have the world's longest to-do list. You know who had the world's longest to-do list? These guys. And what did they do? They missed the point. They missed the entire point of what they had spent their entire lives studying for nothing. Only heaping guilt and condemnation on themselves by their continual study and missing the center, the focus, the point of all Scripture and all history. If we miss Jesus in the Scripture, we have missed the Scripture altogether. No matter what page, no matter what book, no matter what chapter you open up to, if he is not beheld and praised for his glory, we have missed the point altogether. And this was the condition of so many of the Jews of his day and to this very present day. As 2 Corinthians 3 says, their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. To this day, there remains a blindness, a veil over their eyes due to hardness of heart. The Scripture tells us repeatedly that the ignorance of the mind concerning God, the ignorance of the mind is a byproduct of a darkened and hardened heart. It's not more information that we need. These guys had more information than you could shake a stick at, and yet the heart remained unchanged. See, Jesus offers to mankind the free gift of salvation. No strings attached. Come to me. The free gift of salvation is offered to mankind, the most simple and gracious offer that has ever been extended. Come to me and have life. Come to me and have life abundantly. But the hardened, dead heart doesn't respond because it suppresses the truth in unrighteousness, right? Romans 1. There's another dead horse. I'm not going to pull that one out again. You guys were with us through Romans. Lots of talk of the depravity of man. We suppress the truth in unrighteousness because we love our sin. The light of life came into the world, and that light exposes the darkness of men. And like my most dreaded creature on the face of this earth, like cockroaches under a flashlight, right? They scatter and hide. 
This is what happens when light exposes darkness. They scatter and hide, not desiring that their evil deeds would be exposed by the light. The light makes all things manifest. It makes things seen. So when Jesus comes into the world offering the free gift of mercy, men shrink back from him because of their sin. The light of Christ, that light is life to those who walk in the light. We desire that light more than anything. We want to be in its presence. We want to gaze upon it. We want it to blind our eyes with its brilliance and its glory. But those who walk in darkness, it is their undoing. It is the flashlight in the darkness that they will run from. And now Jesus is going to put his all-knowing finger on why the Jews hardened their hearts against him. Verse 41 says, I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. So in the same way that he said in our passage last week, he said he does not receive his testimony from man, right? He says, I do not receive glory from people. Now, do men testify to Christ? Yes. Do people glorify him? Yes. So the point is, ultimately, that he is not reliant on his creation for anything. It's the other way around. We rely on him for everything. He testifies of himself truthfully. That's the only reason that we can testify to him. He does not need man's testimony. His testimony is true, and we agree with his testimony. We say, yes, I agree with you. I am sinful. I am fallen. I am wicked. I need you. You do not need me. It's the other way around. And likewise, he himself is inherently glorious being the only God. He is the glorious one. He alone is able to impart glory. He alone is able to give true glory. He alone is true glory. Amen. We receive glory from him, ultimately. He is the source of it. And yet, he says, they do not seek this glory. The glory and exaltation that comes from being humbled and brought low. The very thing that he himself came to do. Dead horse. He came to humble himself to the lowest Place to become the servant of man, to wash men's feet and to wash them with his own blood, to be humbled to the point of death, even on a cross. What did this result in? This results in the greatest glory in the universe being ascribed to his name humility to glory, suffering to glory lowliness to glory. That is the pattern that was left for us by the glorious one. This is the way it works in God's economy. Lowliness, 
Humility results in glorification, not the other way around. But this is not the way of mankind. This is contrary to everything that the human heart naturally desires. We want to take the offer that Satan laid before Jesus in the temptation, right? You can have all of this. You can have whatever you want, and you can have it without the suffering. You can have it without the pain. You can have it without the trial. If you will just deny the glory that comes from the only God. You can have it. You can seize this earthly, temporary, fleshly, empty glory that comes from men. You can have it. Anyone in this room can have it. All you have to do is deny the Father. It's a choice to make. The Jews fell into, ironically, the very trap that Jesus overcame for them. He came in the Father's name. He came and was in human form all that is true about God, and they did not receive him. So they plainly demonstrated that the love of God was not within them. If they knew God, they would have known Christ. If they heard God, they would have heard Christ. If they sought God's face, they would have seen him in Christ. And if they loved God, they would have loved Christ. They thought, again, ironically, that they were keeping God's law. What is the foremost command of the law? Love God, right? The foremost command was to love God, the thing that they had failed above all to do, right? They, they poured their hearts and their minds into the lesser things and neglected the very heart and root and soul of the law, which was to love God. They had failed at this by plotting against him, to conspire against him, to arrest him, to put him to death. God himself, they saw him and they said, we need to kill that guy. What does that tell you about their hearts? The one who they claim to worship and serve is the very one that they put to death because they desired the glory that they received from men above all. They desired the glory of men above the glory that comes from God. Desired to be seen, to be honored, to be held in high regard. They desired to be in places of authority and public recognition. Our beloved Calvin puts it so perfectly in this way. He says, desire for earthly glory shuts the gate of faith. Desire for earthly glory shuts the gate of faith. He who wants to be somebody in this world makes himself an enemy of God. Simple as that. What good is it to gain the world and lose one's soul? He says, if another comes in his own name, you will receive him. Why? Right? Itching ears to hear what they wanted to hear and not hear the truth. Wicked men despise the truth, and so they will willingly accept and embrace lies because we desire evil. 
and evil desires justification for its evilness, right? Evil does not want to be called evil. Evil wants to be called good. Amen? Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. This is why false religions, false teachers, false gospels, whatever you want to call it, will attempt to remove or lessen or excuse the guilt of man. This is the number one marker of a false gospel or a false religion. It excuses the guilt of man. The desire earthly glory from other men and not the glory that comes only from God through repentance, through agreeing with what he says about mankind. False teachers that come in their own name will always exalt man and bring God down in some way, shape, or form. It's the oldest lie in the book. Do this and you will be like God, right? We all are just God, you know, expressing himself. You know, God is within. We all make up God. We're all little gods. All this stuff, it all brings God down and exalts man. False teachers will do this, and those seeking earthly glory will follow, right? You can have this now. You can exalt yourself. You can enlighten yourself. You can ascend. You can be more than what you are, a fallen son or daughter of Adam. All you have to do is forsake the glory that comes only from God. We must, friends, brothers, sisters, have the correct heavenly perspective of who we are and who he is. This is everything. It's no accident that God has gone to great lengths to describe our wretched state to us so that when we look to him and his perfection and his perfect law, we see that we are condemned. We are undone. We are ruined. We are hopeless. We are brought low exactly where we need to be to receive his gracious gift. We are humbled we are brought low so that we may see our desperate need for the undeserved mercy of God in Jesus Christ and run to his cross that we may find mercy and be exalted by him, receive the glory that only comes from him, glory that is heavenly, glory that is eternal, glory that is spiritual, that is true and whole and valuable. This is the glory that those who love God ought to desire after. This is the glory that true teachers will point to. True teachers will never degrade Christ in order to make more of man. Never may it be. But will present the sinfulness of mankind in all of its fullness so that the purity and glorious grace of Jesus will be praised alone. Amen? Amen? Grace alone. Do not long for the approval of men. This is our great downfall, guys. We want to be approved by people, and we stoop to very low levels to attain it. Humble yourselves that Christ may glorify you. 
Humble yourselves. He humbled himself and received the glory that was due to his name, and he has left that example for us to follow. Humility results in glory, the glory of God. So to get back to our closing verses here, Jesus cites his witnesses. He calls John the Baptist. He calls on the Father. He calls on his own works, and he appeals to the Scripture, and he testifies that the Jews have denied these witnesses. They are devoid of the love of God because they truly desire the approval of men above the approval of God. If you want to be a friend of God, expect to lose friends in the world. There's no way around it. But now he's going to call a final witness to the stand, and that is Moses, or usually Moses refers to the law. So Moses or the law. So verse 45 He says, do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? The notion that the Jews would use Moses to oppose Jesus perfectly follows suit with this thread of insanity that we've seen over the past two weeks. The insanity of man putting God on trial, and now the insanity of appealing to the law of God to oppose the word of God himself. They're going to use Moses to oppose Jesus. They're going to use the law of God to oppose God. And here Jesus answers the fool according to his folly. He says, don't think that Moses is going to protect you or excuse you or somehow justify you. Again, you have it completely backwards. It is Moses that condemns you. You hope in the law? The law only reveals how hopeless you truly are. You make it clear that you recognize the authority of the law, but you deny the one who wrote it. Just like they recognized the authority of John the Baptist, but they denied the one that he came to be a witness to. They recognized the law of God, but crucified the one who was the fuller revelation of God than the law itself. They crucified the one who was the end of the law. Jesus tells them, Moses wrote of me. If you don't believe him, how will you believe me? The books of Moses, the Pentateuch, what are they about? Christ Jesus. That is what the books of Moses are about. They are about Jesus. All of the Old Covenant is about Jesus, who has ushered in the new. All of the old covenant is about Jesus, who has fulfilled the law and ushered in grace. He tells them their hope was in law keeping, in which there is no hope, because there was only one who could keep it, and he is the one who kept it for us. He was in their midst, keeping it for them. That's the whole reason that he even brings 
all these witnesses to the table. He doesn't need witnesses to testify to him. He's doing it for his hearers that they might hear and believe and have life. The overwhelming, ancient, and consistent testimony of God Almighty is only yes and amen. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Son of Man. He is the divine human mediator between God and man. Jesus is the point of it all. He is the truth. He is the life. Amen? So turn to 1 John, if you will, also chapter 5. It's to the right. 1 John chapter 5. Not John 5, 1 John 5, and verse 9. That's what the old school preachers always say. They say, and verse blank. Pay attention to that. It's very interesting. Chapter 5 and verse 9, 1 John. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son, Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. If you have the Son of God, you are alive. You have life. You have life eternal and everlasting, abundantly perfect, glorified in eternity future. You have received life. You have received the free gift, the wonderful free gift. You have received the light of the world, the light of men. And that light now shines in your hearts and it will result in praise and glory at the coming day of Jesus Christ. We look forward to that with great hope and expectancy because we have believed the testimony that God has left for him. His testimony is perfect. It is true. It is complete. It is sufficient. We have everything we need here to see God created, God promised, God delivered. It's as simple as that. Jesus has been foretold from the very, very, very beginning. When God spoke and created the heavens and the earth, what came out of his mouth? The words. The words. Jesus was there. He was always there. He has always been there and he always will be. And he stands right now in a glorified, exalted body, one that we will be made like when he returns for us. Wonderful. This morning, we're going to take the Lord's Supper together for the first time this new year. Wonderful way to start the year. And we will rejoice together, those of us that have received the Son. Jesus told the Jews that they had never seen nor heard God but we have heard his son through whom he now speaks to us. And he has given us eternal life through the breaking of his body, the pouring out of his blood, his death, and his resurrection. 
And in the Lord's Supper and in the preaching of his word, we now see and hear Christ, and we now proclaim him. The Jews had never seen nor heard God. We hear his word preached to us from the scriptures, those who believe, and we see in front of us in the wine and in the bread, it's actually grape juice, but it's wine uh, for those who are concerned. We see in front of us in the wine and the bread, his body and his blood given for us. So we're going to take the Lord's Supper together here in just a moment. If you have not received the Son, I ask that you refrain from doing this, but you can call upon his name right now. You do not have to come forward. You don't have to kneel at the stairs if you want to. By all means, I'm not going to stop you. But you do not need to do anything but receive his free gift. Confess that you need a Savior and trust him. God has borne testimony to his truthfulness. We have all that we need to believe in the name of Jesus. Today is the day of salvation. Do not wait. Do not hesitate. The free gift has been extended to you, so come and receive it. Father, we exalt your name this morning. We give you glory, though you do not need it from us, God. You are worthy of it. We proclaim the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, that you have given us a testimony that is true and sure, that we can have perfect expectance of his return in our future glory. In the meantime, Father, would you please help us, Lord? We are desperately needy, and we are every day tempted to succumb to the temptations of the devil, the desire for glory from men and not from you. I pray that you will continue to humble us in this new year, Father. Bring us low that you may bring us high, Father. We thank you that you allow trial and struggle and tribulation in our lives to remind us of who we are and remind us of who you are, Lord. All things are yours. All power is in you. Life is in you. We thank you that we have been made yours forever. We give you thanks and praise in Jesus' name. Amen.